0: Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. This is episode 18. Here's the update on the ADHD coaching groups. This time, we'll look at when they're going to happen. They'll run for six weeks, beginning during the second week of July and finishing up during the third week of August. If you're interested in becoming part of them, email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com the link will be in the show notes my guest today is chandler creeden chandler is a veteran educator with over 40 years of experience working as a school psychologist counselor and college professor he recently tried to retire but it didn't stick as you'll hear chandler is a former professor of mine and one of my mentors it is an honor to have him on the show in today's episode we talk about skills and how heavily a lack of skills plays into why kids struggle, both at home and at school, especially kids with ADHD. We also go deep on executive function and various school issues, but I do my best to loop around and explain things if I think they've become unclear. Speaking of which, early on, Chandler says he's questioning ADHD. He doesn't mean he's questioning its existence only the ways in which it is approached in schools. But that doesn't become clear for a while, so I thought I should mention it up front in case anyone misinterprets him and bails out before the conversation really gets started. It's a very good one, with one of the most important and valuable points coming up near the end. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. All right, let's get rolling. So you have recently retired after... About a forty-year-long career is in education and sort of guidance counseling and school psychology, and then I understand they dragged you back in.
1: Well, I don't know if they dragged me or I was just so bored that <laughs> I I went back on my own.
0: Not uh, being able to handle boredom is a good sign for someone <laughs> on an ADHD podcast.
1: The uh, and what's what's been really fascinating about this is I worked mo- most of my life with middle school kids, middle mm. and high school kids. I did some elementary stuff um, as, as a school psychologist, but I, car, the current job that I'm doing is a pre-K through three school. And it has been just, it's been unbelievable just going back and learning and seeing what's going on and what, you know, I mean, I'm a lot of the principles that I held as a middle school counselor and psychologist, I'm really questioning now as to how true they all were. Really? Yeah.
0: So what were some of those principles and how are they being challenged?
1: Well, it, it's it's interesting because one of the things that I'm really questioning is, um, and I don't know how this will sound to you, but I, I'm really questioning this whole thing of ADHD. And the really? Reason, really, and the reason I'm questioning that is because some of these little kids that I'm seeing in school, I'm wondering, is it really ADHD or is it the fact that they've never had what I'm going to call basic training?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what I mean by basic training is, and 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 this is not this is not a dispersion to anybody, but I'm really concerned that, you know, in today's economy, parents are working two and three jobs, they're getting home and they're exhausted. And who does the training to help these kids focus on what they need to do in school? Right. And so all of a sudden you have all these kids coming into a pre-K program or a, or a day day program and they haven't developed the skills to sit and to do some of the things that schools are asking them to do. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, this kid's got attention deficit. And it's, I, I'm, I, I'm really questioning, do they have attention deficit or is it something that we haven't trained them with?
0: Right. So- so my thoughts on that are um, pretty well developed at this point because that's a, I mean I've heard that before, right? Yeah. And and when we're looking at pre-K through three, those skills often shouldn't even be there yet. A lot of the stuff going on at the early age, early grades aren't really appropriate for what those kids should be doing, but we're asking them to do it anyway. And those,
1: absolutely. Those are- and and that's one of the things I had a big discussion with some of the pre pre-K teachers the other day, and we're talking about you know that. They're talking about them writing and knowing their letters and all these other kinds of things. And it's like, whatever happened to being able to play and some of the dramatic play and learning to get along with one another. Yeah. And all of those kinds of things.
0: And and because play is at that age serves different purposes as we grow up. And right. but those these same lessons repeat. But it play at that age is really teaching us skills around communication around right. being able to take the perspective of another person because if i say hey look there's a t-rex you kind of have to agree with me if the if the game is going to continue right um so you have to be able to see that perspective that i'm sharing with you and when yeah. we don't allow that play to happen we see the social skills that are falling apart with kids that are older yeah and instead we're cramming the academic stuff instead when it shouldn't be there
1: and and i said to i when i was talking to some of these pre-k teachers the other day i said you know why is it that we have to jump into the academic stuff right away? Why aren't we spending September and October, even into November, really helping them develop some of these these social emotional skills uh, to really help them function within the classroom? And it's mm-hmm. like, well, we have you know we have all these mandates, and we have to be able to do this. And I walked by a classroom, a uh, kindergarten class, the other day, and they were. They were sorting out books according to levels and it's like you know why are we just reading to kids? Yeah and I know that's I know that, you know I know that's not scientific and all the rest of that, but I'm really I'm worried about that that if 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 we're not providing these skills for these kids and and we we just sort of pushing them along, what happens? I mean not just with the kids with attention deficit because I, I believe attention deficit is there and, and it's something we have to work with. But then if kids don't have these social skills, what happens to you know, where does it all go?
0: Yeah, it sounds like your question is not, does ADHD exist? It sounds like you're coming down on the side of ADHD exists, but you're wondering if we're not teaching these skills, because ADHD is such a heavily skill based disorder,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: if we're not teaching these skills, how many kids are getting misdiagnosed with ADHD when exactly what they have is a skills deficit? Absolutely. And I think the distinction there is that's when we get to like the metacognition stuff with, with executive function, right? Like yeah. some, kid, some kids can get pushed through and they just pick it up eventually. They figure it right. out. Um, and it might not be in kindergarten or first grade or third grade. It might not happen until fifth or sixth, but they eventually figure out how to study. They figure out how to prioritize their schoolwork. And the ADHD kids really need direct instruction on that mm-hmm. regardless of how old they are.
1: Somebody, somebody said to me, well, those are the hidden curriculum." And I said, why do they have to be hidden? Why aren't we teaching them? Yeah. Why are we teaching them? I mean, okay, so the kid picks maybe eventually picks them up, but what if we were teaching that in in pre-K and kindergarten and grade one so that they know what this is? Right. School the school that I'm at right now has uh, an initiative. Again, it's a pre-K through three school, and they have two elementary guidance counselors, and they've taken the initiative this year that they're into all of the pre-K, grade one, and grade two classrooms, and they're actually doing classes on social-emotional learning, talking about you know the zones of regulation and communication and those kinds of things. And their hope is that by really focusing on pre-K, K, grade one and two, that by the time the kids hit grade two and three, they have an understanding of some of these things mm-hmm. and that teachers... Then, using either something like open circle or the responsive classroom, can use those techniques and have it have some meaning to it.
0: And just for my listeners, a lot of that is our teacher and instruction-specific tools. Those are curriculums.
1: They're, they're more they're more tools, like having a, having a uh, a morning meeting to outline what's going to happen during the day, right? Or, or things like that. Yes. Which
0: is part of open circle and right. probably part of all of them. I would hope. right um but that those are just different approaches to helping kids with social emotional learning and whether or not they have challenges doesn't matter everybody everybody needs to to experience it because they already right um so what i'm really curious and i should again i should share with the with the audience that uh chandler is you're probably going to hear a lot of stuff that i say coming out of chandler (laughs) chandler first um he's one of my mentors in terms of the social emotional learning side of uh education because he's one of my professors from when i got my master's degree in school counseling and i think i believe i had like three classes with you um, something so, like that yeah so there's a, i'm sure there's a lot of stuff that's going to come out of you that my listeners are going to go that sounds like brendan <laughs> it doesn't, it sounds like chandler when i say it as a result i'm really curious to hear about what sort of what which of your perspectives are being challenged because i was learning them from you not that long ago <laughs>
1: Well, see, again, it's it's the the whole thing of skills and s- developing skill sets, mm-hmm. and h- and how do we help these how do we help these kids develop the skills that they need without a label? Somebody somebody had said to me the other day that this student had an executive functioning disorder, and I looked at him and I said, "What does that mean?" And they said, "He's got an executive functioning disorder." And I said, "No, no, what does that mean? Do they have trouble?" Initiating work? Do they have trouble terminating their work? Do they have trouble with transitions? And the person looked at me and said, no, they have executive functioning. <laughs> and I said, no, no, we, we have to figure out what is the difficulty because once we can define what the difficulty is, then we can begin to develop a skill set to help them understand where they're going. Right. This year working with these young kids, it, it's become so important to me to to figure out what is it? You know, in one—I'm sure—one of the classes you—you you, when you took those classes with me, you heard me talk about—you know—is it the fish or is it the water? Right. And and I'm here. I am back to that.
0: Yeah, that's something I want to dig into. Um, and let me pause you real quick, okay? Because one of the—I just for the listeners again, because we're hitting—we're going a little deep, and I want to sort of guide my listeners to us. Okay. One of the things you're talking about is. um this whole it's he's got executive functioning difficulties and and you're saying like, what does that mean? And in case there's some parents listening right now who are like, "Well, my kid's got executive functioning issues, and that's all I know. What do you mean? What does he mean? So executive function gets broken down into a number of smaller categories, and that's things like initiation, just starting a task, emotional regulation, time awareness, planning and prioritizing, working memory, focus, just your general ability to, to attend all of that right and and even resiliency even sort of right. even, like the ability to follow a task through to the end instead of losing it midway through
1: there's a there's a uh school psychologist out of pennsylvania George mccluskey is his name and he's written a lot about executive functioning and he has in his book he has 33 specific executive functioning wow. that, he's bro- that he's broken down into seven i'd say seven categories so you have the seven categories, and under those seven categories, he's got these thirty-three different specific skill areas. And as I look at those now, and I'm I'm thinking to myself, well, how how do we figure out what those skills are? Mm-hmm. And begin to work on them and begin to teach them.
0: Even that one of the things I've been playing with recently is uh, I'm I think I'm going to wind up calling it executive functioning algebra. Yeah. And I'll give you a quick example just to get give let you get an idea of what I mean. Like you go to clean your closet and it doesn't happen. You get partway through and the next thing you know, you just lost an hour staring at an old photo album. Yeah. There's a number of executive functions that failed you in that process. And if we look at ADHD through the lens of executive function and accept that we're going to have challenges with executive function, then we can examine where that fell apart, right? Absolutely. It took me a little while to start cleaning my closet. There's my initiation challenge. Yep. Once I look at the closet, I don't know what to do. Like I, I'm i lost. So You're overwhelmed. My, and it, I need to clean it because I have organizational challenges. Right. And I look at it, I don't know where to start because my planning and prioritizing skills are not that great. Right. So finally, I just grab something and I start going. But I'm having all kinds of anxiety around this because my ability to regulate my, att- my emotions is weakened and I'm feeling overwhelmed by this organizational structure. Yeah but I get some stuff going. I start moving some boots or some clothes or whatever. And then I come across this photo album (laughs) and I start flipping through this photo album and I come back to that emotional regulation challenge because I'm lost in the emotions of these photos, right? Like, Uh, absolutely. I'm going back to that time and that those happy moments. And that's totally, I'm totally caught up in that. Yeah. And I lose an hour in this photo album, but I don't even know that I lost an hour in this photo album because my time awareness is Maybe. making it feel like it was 10 minutes right? because it's so engaging. So right. that's what I mean when I say executive functioning algebra, like what plus what
1: equals, equals
0: I didn't clean my closet in time.
1: Oh, I, like, I like that model. I, th- I think that's an important piece to think about.
0: And I, I'm leaning towards working memory and time awareness are both multipliers as opposed to adders Yeah. because that stuff makes everything so much harder. If you're not remembering stuff and your time awareness isn't working, that's a big change.
1: Well, I, it's funny where this is, I think where this is coming from is I had to have my car fixed a while ago. My mechanic was doing a favor for me. Yep. He he had me come after, after I got out of school. And as I'm there, I'm sitting in his garage. I'm trying to look very professorial and academic (laughs) among all the grease and everything. And I, I'm watching him work on my car and he's, he's like really struggling. And I'm thinking this isn't good. And all of a sudden, um, this guy walks in says to him, what are you doing? And the guy says to him, well, wait a minute, I'll be right back, and he disappeared. He comes back in, and he's pulling a tool off a blister card, hip-checks my mechanic out of the way, and goes in, does something with this tool, and comes out and says, is this the piece you're looking for? Now I'm intrigued. So I went over to to talk to him and the mechanic, and I said, who are you, and what do you do? And he said, "Um, I work for Snap-On Tools, Mm-hmm. My job is to go around and find what difficulties mechanics are having, and then I have a tool for it. So I sell them the tool that they need to be successful. And I looked at him and I said, that's going to be my job within education, is I've got I've to develop a way to assess the tools that students need to be successful, then provide them with those tools. Right, And the example you gave of, of the cleaning your closet is, is like so so amazing because th- that's the kind of thing, you know, what's step one, what's step two, what's step three?
0: What are the potential pitfalls?
1: Right. Where are you going to fall on this thing? And, and that's why, why when I had this conversation with the educator about the, the child with the executive functioning, it's like, I don't want to label this as executive functioning because that doesn't tell me anything. It it tells me that you don't think the kid's going to be successful, but I want to know what we have to do to make this kid successful.
0: That's something I hadn't thought of until just now, where if all we're saying is, oh, he's got executive functioning difficulties, we're really running the risk of effectively saying, oh, he's just stupid, right, or he's just not smart enough, or whatever, however you want to put that really horrible and offensive phrase. We don't want to allow he's got executive functioning challenges, or she's Got executive functioning difficulties to become, he can't do it. Right. She's just not good enough. She's not smart enough because that's not the case. This is all skill stuff.
1: And and and, and we have to somehow we have to figure out what what the skills are that are missing. I, I remember back a whole bunch of years ago there was a, a, a psychologist at UMass who was in the process of building this big attention deficit clinic at UMass at the medical center and they wanted him to, you know, they were gonna give him all kinds of money to build this because they saw this as a big way of of bringing patients in and so forth. And he finally came to the the conclusion that it didn't make sense to build a building because when you bring kids into the building, it's all gonna be new and novel to them and you're not gonna see any of the behavior that you would see in a classroom or at home or something. And he turned it around and said, Rather than build a building or build a big office space, let's send the clinicians out to the house. Let's send the clinicians out to the school to really observe what the behaviors are, so that we can begin to build a skill set.
0: Yeah, and that that's why I make house calls and I consult with schools and all that stuff because you got to be there.
1: Right. He didn't last long there. He went on to an, he went on to another <laughs> facility that um, you know w- was more to his thinking. I think we have to think of this not as a label, but what is the skill set we need to develop here? Mm -hmm. How do we help somebody initiate the process? How do we help them sustain their focus? Moving from step one to step two to step three, do they know what the steps are?
0: How do we do that? How do we figure out what's lacking? What are some techniques that you've used in your 40 plus years in education to, to help determine where the areas of weakness are?
1: Well, uh, well, I'll give you an example. One of my classics is when, I I mean, I don't know how many parents I've heard uh, talk about the fact that every time I say to my kid, go clean his room, we have world war something. It's like, well, I don't want you to say to your kid, go clean your room. What I want you to do is I want you to go with your child to their room. I want you to clean their room with them to the specifications you want it to be at. Then I want you to take pictures 360 degrees in the room. And then I want you to say the next time, go make your room look like these pictures. Yep. Because that way the child's going to know what you expect and how it should happen. And I've said to them, you know, take pictures as you're doing it. You know, all the sweaters need to be here or this is how you put your socks together.
0: Yeah, because we're really creating a map.
1: Absolutely. You had said something about crazy thoughts about some of this stuff. Growing up as a child, I was the oldest of eight kids. And the thing that my mom used to do to us, if if for some reason we weren't behaving or we had a whatever, she would make us take out the socks box, which was a box of mismatched socks. And you had to match 10 pairs before you could move on to something. Hopefully
0: there were 10 pairs.
1: Well, yeah, hopefully there were. (laughs) But usually you could find them. But, but at one point, it said to, I said to myself, well, this is the most stupid thing I've ever done. And um, for some reason, I found some of the common pins.
0: Mm-hmm. Like safety pins?
1: Safety pins, yeah. And I said, well, why don't we just pin the socks together when we take them off at night? <laughs> and then you don't have to go searching for them, you know, or the washing machine is going to eat them or whatever. You know, th- they're already matched for you. You know, I tell that story to people, and people people laugh at it. But it's like, that's a technique to say, how many hours of of uh, I don't know turmoil or crisis would you save by doing that? Back when my daughter was young, there was a whole clothing line, Garanimals or something, and they they matched the clothes together. You know, you'd put all, I don't know how, how it worked. You put all the lions and everything was a lion matched or something. <laughs> yeah you don't have to go to that extreme but if you if you go to help your child with their clothes in the closet or something and you you pin a little note you know you wear this with the blue pants uh or or those kinds of things you have those are skills that that by doing it you you've saved all kinds of time and energy as a family that you don't have to be arguing with them
0: yeah and that that's awesome
1: you know it's just it's just a, again it's what's what's the problem And what's the skill set that goes with it?
0: And what's the solution? And can that solution be presented in advance if that problem is going to repeat? That's part of what you're doing.
1: Absolutely. Uh, At the middle school, homework. I used to get to the point where I would say to teachers, when you assign homework, not only do I want you to assign the homework, but I want you to tell the students how long you think it's going to take them to do it. Because kids, especially at the middle level, kids have trouble doing homework because they think it's going to take them forever to do it. Right. And and so they're not going to get started on something that's going to take them forever. But if they know the math lesson is going to be 15 minutes, that's tolerable.
0: That sends my brain in two directions. One is asking a teacher to predict for their students how long that assignment is going to take. That's an important strategy for the teacher to have. Right. you, You talked earlier about how we have to give the kids these skills and these tools. We also have to give them to the teachers because they can't give them to the students if we don't give them to them.
1: If they don't know it, right. Right.
0: And there's plenty of teachers out there who are not estimating how long it's going to take a kid to do the homework. They're looking at how long it takes them. And they're like, this is, this is like five minutes. And then the kid needs to be able to provide feedback. If the teacher gives predictions of time, some kids are going to see that as an opening to say, no, that took me 20 minutes. You said it was going to be 10 and it took me 20. Does, is that okay? Or however the kid says it. Right. But now the teacher's getting feedback around how long homework takes. Right. Lots of teachers don't get that information Well, because they're not talking about time. And the other one, real quick, when we've got kids who are trying to estimate how long an assignment's going to take, this is particularly true for ADHD kids. With ADHD, we often conflate time with emotion. So if, it, if I'm just intimidated by math and uh, this assignment is supposed to take 15 minutes according to my teacher, maybe I'll believe them but it's gonna feel like a half an hour, 45 minutes because there's so much intimidation going on.
1: Right, and if, if, you're, if you're not aware of time, I used, to, I used to do an exercise with sixth graders where I'd say to them, I want you to tell me when you think 60 seconds are up, and I'd cover the clock so they couldn't see the second hand. Inevitably, the kids with attention deficit, I said, when you think 60 seconds is up, I want you to stand up. Inevitably, the kids with attention deficit like were popping within 10 seconds because they had no idea what 60 seconds was, or how long it would be. So if you have that, plus you have the emotion tied to math or to writing or something like that, it makes it very difficult, you know, to really do that. And that's why I think it becomes important to think about the skills. And what is, what's the skill set that we need to do? The point, the, the point, one of the points you just made, which I think is essential, and I just, I, I'm sort of coming to grips with it. We spend all kinds of time as teachers doing professional development, looking at curriculum and how to teach this and how to teach that and the other thing, the school that I'm at, a couple of teachers got together and put a grant together, and they have three different groups reading a book on, uh, like I think this year's book is the Power of Language. It's one of the books from the Responsive Classroom. And what's really fascinating is um, it's 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 a I, I would say a semi Formal get together. I have, I said that I would lead one of the groups, and I have, I think it's uh, 15 teachers in my group. And we come together every Wednesday and we talk about the different chapters in the books and so forth. And last night when, when we did that class, it was so interesting to hear teachers say, I never thought of that. But we're talking about listening. There's a chapter in the cha- uh, the book about listening. And somehow we got on a conversation about all these kids like raising their hands to answer questions. And there one teacher said, I don't ask them to raise their hands. I ask them to do, and I don't know if there's a name for it, but she says, if they, they know an answer, she says, I have them put their thumb under their chin and raise their thumb if they have one answer. If they have two answers, they put their fingers out like this with two fingers showing or three fingers showing. And she said, and then I'll choose the kid that only has their thumb up because I know that that child only has one response. And so I'll get to that child first, and then I'll go to the people that have the two and three fingers up, because I know that even if one of those thoughts, you know, the first child that gave me, this child will have an expanded set.
0: That's awesome. And his answer isn't getting
1: stolen. Right. Yeah. But what was fascinating was... Uh, this one teacher, is it's, it's a technique, that I don't know where she said she she picked it up, but these other 14 teachers said, oh my God, that's really amazing. How come I don't know about that? Yeah. And it's because, again, it's because we've, we spend so much time on de- developing curricular and how to teach math and how to do this, that we really don't spend time with teachers to say, let's look at the skills that go behind this stuff.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: like the, the issue of time
0: or just awareness, right? When I I used to teach before I would do group work before my first group, group work lesson. And then I'd kind of repeat it inconsistently for the rest of the year with every group lesson, I would have my kids get completely quiet. I'd make the whole room silent. And then I would talk just insanely quiet, almost at a whisper. And I won't do it here because it'll be weird on the podcast but I would talk incredibly silently and I would say, if you can hear me, raise your hand. And every kid in that class would raise their hand because I knew how to modulate my voice to, right. New, right. And then I would say, so if all of you can hear me, why is it that when you sit down to this group, because you're all in sixth grade, you've done group work before. If all of you can hear me when I talk this quietly, why is it that when you sit down in your group, you're going to sit down and immediately start talking this <laughs> loud. And because then you're only going to go up because the next group can't hear you and they're right. going to get louder and that means you're going to have to get louder. I was like, so all of you are going to start, and I bring my voice back down and say, right down here, right. And I mean, it would buy me ten to fifteen minutes of more time before I had to interrupt them and tell them to be quiet again. But that's a valuable ten to fifteen minutes. Absolutely. before they escalate. So
1: absolutely. But uh, you know, those are uh, those uh, again, I'm I'm really focusing on skill sets, skills mm-hmm. for for students, skills for teachers. One of the teachers that are in my group, her class went on a field trip today, and she stopped in to see me on her way out, and she said, "You know how we talked about uh, when students give us a response, we shouldn't pa- we shouldn't re get, you know we shouldn't say what they just said to us. Mm-hmm. We should just let it go." And she said it was really funny because at the wherever they went today, the the leaders the kids would answer questions and they repeat the question, they repeat their answer back to them. She said, it was just amazing to watch. She said, I hadn't thought about that, but I, but I saw that and, and it like jumped out at me.
0: That's interesting because that's, I teach parents the opposite of that. I teach parents to reflective, listen, to repeat back to the kid, what they said so that they feel validated so that they feel heard to reduce the anxiety to help the kid move on from that thought to the next one and and really, be productive, so, I, I guess I'm pushing back on that a little bit because it depends on the kid. Some kids you're like awesome, right? But and some kids you want to help them feel heard so that they don't. If it's an anxious kid, for example,
1: right? But the, the the difference I think being is, do you repeat back exactly what they say or do you paraphrase what they're saying?
0: Right, and we want to paraphrase, yeah.
1: Right. So, but but you'll be amazed at the number of teachers that just repeat back word for word what they just heard from the student.
2: Oh wow! Okay.
1: And 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 that was the piece that that she was making. It's not that. So you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's they're repeating back word for word what what they just said, which the woman who wrote the book is talking about. Uh, you know that sort of invalidates what they're saying because. Now it's coming from you as opposed to coming from them,
0: oh yeah, okay,
1: even even from a therapeutic perspective when what I'm doing counseling with kids, what I'm checking with is so so what you're saying is this because I need them to tell me yes, it is or no, it isn't right, so that I can understand that better, yeah, we're
0: on the same page, even right. if i even if I do by chance happen to repeat back to them exactly what they said, right my tone and inflection and nonverbals all turn that into a question to ask if I'm getting it right. Right. Which is along the same idea. Absolutely. So let's, let's loop back to that. Is it the fish or is it the water? <laughs> Walk us through what that means. And then I'd like to see where you, where you go with it.
1: Where that came from is, is I saw once a, a picture of this fish in a bowl and the, underneath it was, is the problem the fish or is it the water? And how I interpreted that was, whose problem is it? Is it is it the fish's problem, or is it the environment, mm-hmm. the environment that the fish is living in? And that has become important to me because, if it's if it's the skill set missing, then we need to help the child deal with the skill set. If it's the environment, such as you have a child with with attention if difficulties. But they're in a class of thirty-three kids, and you know one teacher. Whose problem is it? Is that is that the child's problem or is that an environmental problem? Mm-hmm. And 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 so that's one of the things that I, I I I look at is who owns this? Is it where do we go with it? What do we do with it? Uh, and I think it it helps just sort through you know if i t- if we tie it back to what we what we were first talking about with some of these kids come in pre-k and kindergarten is the problem of them not being able to focus their attention that they ne- that they don't have the basic skills that they haven't learned some of those basic skills to be successful from an environmental perspective or is it that the attention deficit short circuits everything right and again you, i think you have to you have to sort that out and do an evaluation
0: Yeah. And also look at who has the ability to, to address this problem too. Like that's in there, right? Right. That kid in a class of 33, he can't do anything to address that problem. Absolutely not. But a kid who lacks the skills, if he knows, or she knows that these skills are lacking, then they can stay after school. They can, they can can. be straightforward with the teacher. Look, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me? I don't get it. They can ask for help and ask for support. And in a lot of cases, it's sort of the school's problem regardless. Right. But when, where are we asking the kid to take ownership of it and what's appropriate to ask the kid to take ownership of and what's not appropriate?
1: Right. I mean, you're absolutely correct. No matter what it is, it's a school issue. But the bigger thing is teachers are being asked to do more and more with less and less. Right. And as a result of that, all of these kids are, are missing out. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I, I don't know where we're going to go with that.
0: I can tell you one of the places that people go with that is me. Yeah. Cause I I mean, a chunk of a big chunk of my clientele is just, what do we do with our kids and their IEP and the five Oh four. And I was consulting today on a behavior program with a kid who had, um, she, you know, gets distracted and stuff. And so they have like a sort of a positive behavior program where if she is only distracted twice (laughs) per like subject period because she's in elementary school. So like twice in English and twice in math or whatever. And if it only happens no more than twice and at the end of the day, if it winds up being 90% or less, so she she could theoretically be distracted three times in math and then rock it in every other time of the day and not, and still get her reward. And her reward is okay. Well, you got one day this week. And at the end of the week, if you have all five days, you get to go to the gym. And I was like, that is not going to work. <laughs> right, of course it's not going to work. you got to have immediate feedback. You've got to, right. even if all you're doing is giving the kid a bead at the end of the day and she cashes in five beads when she has them for gym time, Yeah, that's better at least. So many of the behavioral feedback programs are like in an effort to make it easier to manage, again, doing too much with too little, it winds up being not that useful.
1: A- absolutely. And in the case you just, you spoke about it. If I were looking at that, my question would be: So, what's going on in the environment that's causing her the difficulty? Is it that there are so many students that that she's getting lost? Is it that there's not enough adult help? Mm -hmm. What is? Where is it?
0: Yeah, and in that, in this case, I was talking to parents. I wasn't going to get answers to those questions anyway. Right, but those questions are important, and they're important at home too. Absolutely. Right, like why is your kid battling with you? When? Why? What causes your kid to be? resistant to homework is it a time of day thing if you do it earlier in the day is it easier to get the homework done is it harder later is it the reverse
1: is it is it having a pro, is it having a process uh, i i used to talk to students about the fact that when you get home i want you to start with the most difficult piece of homework mm-hmm. because if you start with the most difficult piece and you get that done by the time you get to the less intense homework you still have enough energy to get through those right but if you leave that that horrible assignment till the very end, you're going to be so tired that you're not going to get it done anyway.
0: I usually tell my clients to do the quickest, easiest one first and then do the hard one just yeah. to get the ball rolling.
1: Yeah, that's that would make sense.
0: I don't want them to get stuck not being able to initiate because it's the hard one and it's intimidating and they, right. they lose a half an hour to trying to figure out how to get it started.
1: Right. And and again, I think that depends on on the student. It depends on what their skill set is. Right and knowing what, what it is you need to do. And that's, I think that's the hard part. That's the piece. I mean, I think, I think that's something that therapists and school counselors are going to have to work more and more on. Let's define the problem and let's see where we go with it. Yeah. So much of this is problem solving.
0: Right. And I, I mean, I, people ask (laughs) me what I do and I'm like, well, (laughs) and I, I, I've boiled it down to problem solving communication and compassion yeah those are my three things that i do with people and perspective taking too that's in there that's kind of the compassion component absolutely so you've been in you've been in the education biz for four decades how have things changed because we've got parents who were in school four decades ago and now they have kids in school now and they're basing their expectations on what happened
1: when they were in school and it's not the same it's not the same and I don't know if I use this in one of the classes that you had with me, but one of the things I asked my graduate students to do is if they're working in a school on the night of uh, open house where they bring all the parents in, to stand by the front door and watch parents come through the front door. Because inevitably there's a certain, I guess I'd say, ambiance of walking through the front door of a school. Mm-hmm. It includes a smell and just visual presentation. And so many times. I've watched parents walk in the door, and they open the door and that hits them, and it goes right back to when they were in school. It brings them right back to where they were if they had difficulty or something along those lines. And, you know, the, we're then expecting them to make things better for their kids, and they're still stuck on whatever their experience was, which is really hard. Just the fact of all the changes in the curriculum and the some of the math things that they do, the writing things that they do, I have a friend of mine that's a kindergarten teacher, and she was upset a year or so ago that one of the things to, that these kindergarten kids had to be able to tell her at the end of the school year, was they had to be able to list three different genre of literature. I'm not sure I knew what a genre was when I was in college. I taught that in sixth grade. Right. And the kids had never heard of it before. Right. So where does that come from? You know, it, it comes from somebody thinking that it's really important for kindergarten kids to know what a genre is. And do parents know? Uh, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just so much that's changed. You know, unless you're, you're, you're a parent that's had the opportunity to go in and visit the school a whole lot. But if you're working two and three jobs, you're not going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to rely on your child. You have to rely on whatever communications are coming home from the teacher and so forth. And it's, it's really difficult. You know, when you ask me what's changed, my first job out of college back in 1972 was at a state hospital for children. It was called the Gabler Unit, and it was a locked unit for kids that we today would see in public schools, mm-hmm. kids with, with autism and uh, developmental delays and so forth and so on back in 72 they weren't part of the public schools. We hadn't you know we didn't have the special education programs that we have today and as a result of that you know there's the, there's this thing um, free free appropriate or uh, public education and so forth that everybody's entitled to and one of the one of the concerns with that is by by developing all these inclusion programs which I think is really important if you have a class of 20 kids, and you have two kids that have difficulty, how much time are you allowed to give everybody? I mean, that complicates things.
0: It does. And again, I'm with you on inclusion, it matters. It's important. Um, free and appropriate public education is is something we want to do. The least restrictive environment that matters is that's significant as well. But if you've got kids who are disruptive just from the nature of whatever their disorder is, and then you've got kids who have attentional issues they're more disrupted by that even if the other if it's two kids with ADHD you know you've got an inattentive kid and a hyperactive kid and your hyperactive kid is disruptive that hyperactive kid is more disruptive for the inattentive ADHD kid right and he is for the rest of the kids in the class right and so what do we do with that how do we navigate that as a teacher as a school curriculum as a school district
1: and and again it goes it goes i think it goes back to skill sets and so forth we don't put a lot of emphasis on you know teacher training we expect that all these general ed teachers know how to deal with this stuff and and if if not oftentimes they're blamed for the problem right and because they, you know if they say to the child you can't be in the classroom right now for what if they let's say there's a behavior issue you need to go to the principal at some point the principal gets really upset with them because they keep sending the kid to them and it's like, you have to deal with this, but if they don't have the skill set, you know, where does that go? There are budget issues that are involved with that. And it's, it's, I dunno, I, I, sometimes I get discouraged and I don't want to get discouraged because, <laughs> uh, you know, that this whole process of education, I think is just so important. But if it's that important, I saw it just before you, we went on, on today, I saw somebody put a thing on Facebook We should be paying politicians and teachers the same amount of money. And if politicians say that that's not enough to live on, well, that's the issue for for some of these teachers.
0: And looping looping back to what you're saying about just the knowledge base and the skill set base, right? I've done enough professional developments on ADHD. And I can tell you, lots of teachers don't know what it is. Right. Which is amazing to me because it's one of the most prevalent Challenges that kids face in schools and that teachers face in schools. Right. And so many teachers think they know, but their understanding is really shallow and their understanding is based largely on the name. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I get it. This kid can't pay attention and he can't sit still. The end. That is not what's going on with ADHD. It's so much more complicated than that. We've been talking about executive functioning this whole time. That's not attention exactly. Right. Or attention is a small piece of executive functioning. Right. Right. That's enormous. That, to not understand what this stuff really means and then to have to navigate it as a teacher is, is incredibly challenging.
1: Absolutely. It becomes a meaningless label that, that you, dismiss, you dismiss whatever's going on. Well, he's got attention deficit or he's got, I don't know.
0: Whatever. It becomes the reason as opposed to anything else. And it's, it's not as severe as autism spectrum disorders are. Those tend to get more attention. They're also more rare. Right. But that's, the, that's what gets all the attention. And then your ADHD kids, who sometimes are comorbid with autism, but your ADHD kids who can kind of fly under the radar are still not being served. Right. And you've got, te- you've got parents screaming about it.
1: And, and that's why, again, I think it's just so essential to go back and say, what are the skill set? What's the skill set that's missing? So what skills do you most often see missing? It can be a broad spectrum. I mean, just some of the things we've talked about of, of how do you initiate? How do you, uh, well, I'll give you an example. I talk about a launch pad
2: mm-hmm.
1: that that um, parents should set aside a, a space somewhere in their house, usually by whatever door the kid leaves. And I'll, I'll talk sometimes about them getting some kind of a crazy piece of collared carpet or something, and that becomes a launch pad. Mm-hmm. So that when the child goes to bed at night, everything that they're going to take to school the next morning, it has to be on that carpet before they go to bed so that when they when they get up in the morning, which is usually a hassle, because the kid doesn't <laughs> want to get up, the kid doesn't want to go through the morning routine, you know, mom and dad are uh, frazzled, there's breakfast, there's all this stuff going on, and then if all of a sudden the kid says, well, where's my math book? It could cause a whole cascade of effects that really get ugly. So let's put a launch pad together, so that's one less thing that you have to worry about in the morning. So we, I, again, it's, Where's the difficulty?
0: Yeah, I'm with you. And and um, those of you listening, you think that's the third thing that you've heard me repeat from Chandler, but it's actually the second because that one I brought from another person or another article. But, but as we've been talking, I've been paying attention to all of the things you've said that I say.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> and so one of those is the room pictures. Yeah. Right down to the word specifications. I use that word too when I tell yeah. people to take a picture of them. Um, and also the memory of school, which is so important. That one, I, t- I tell people that all the time because it matters that you walk into school and you're that kid again. And I'll, I'll share a story with you real quick about a buddy of mine from high school who's been talking to me. His kid's got ADHD and he reaches out to me and knows where yep. expertise is. And he's got it nailed. Like he doesn't really need my help. I'm like, nope, you're doing it all right. Keep doing what you're doing. It's fine. If it gets worse, call me, but you're doing stuff right. And then he went to school. And he was a buddy of mine from high school. So I know that he was not that great in school and that he got in trouble and, and yep. what his, who he was when he went to high school and middle school. And so he went to meet with his, the principal and his uh, kid's teacher. And he was like, yeah, the meeting went like this and we did this. And then I just like, I was wondering these questions. And I said, well, did you ask those questions? And he was like, No. And this guy's got it together. Like he's a salesman, yeah, really successful. There is no scenario where he's not asking those questions except in a school. Anywhere else, any boardroom in the world, he's asking those questions. But you go into the school and they bring you in the principal's office and you are that kid who used to get in trouble again. Absolutely. And you clam up. Absolutely. I really want my listeners, there's a reason I went back to that one. Um, that is... One of the most valuable things I learned from you um, that I relate to my clients on a regular basis, because you can't go back to being the kid that you were in school when you meet with your kid's teacher or the principal about a 504 or an IEP. You can't, because you're going to miss stuff. So being aware of that phenomenon is important.
1: And even to the point of like writing down all of the questions that, that you, you know, you're carrying in your head to have answered, bring those with you. And 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 say to them, before I leave, I need answers to all these questions.
0: And that's skill stuff. That's this is all skills, perspectives, and knowledge. That's what we just did. Everything we've been talking about, we're just we're providing that right now.
1: Schools have a big there's a big power thing to schools. And and if you haven't worked your way through that, it, it can be derailing. Whether you're a student or you're you're a parent of a, a student, it can just derail you and and not you you're not able to ask the questions you need to ask or get the information you need to ask. And it can be devastating. And is that power stuff intentional? Is it just the nature of the beast? I mean, I think it's the, it's the nature of the beast. There's a hierarchy in school. But if, again, if, if you know that when you walk in the door, it's going to bring you back to where you were and you have a, you have a script with you, and you make you know you make it a point that you're going to ask the questions on the script no matter what you know then then it's not as emotional
0: just being mindful of time do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our listeners
1: i i think that the biggest essential that i that i would take away is be aware of skills what's the skill set that's missing mm-hmm. be your own snap-on tool guy to figure <laughs> out what to figure out what's what's the tools that my kid needs to be successful and where do I go to get that? I right. mean, there are a lot of therapists out there now working with skill sets as opposed to you know coming up with some psychological reason why the kid's having difficulty. Let's work on these skill sets so that we, we can help you be successful. Hey, you're still here?
0: Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.